First, it's important to put the Second Mine War in context and really set the stage for this narrative with some important background information. World War I erased most of the progress made during and after the First West Virginia Mine War. It had killed the socialist and labor movements in the interest of fostering unity. West Virginia newspapers urged readers to be loyal in thought, word, and deed, and the public was urged to view any union activity as disloyal. Effectively, the push for unity and productivity, coupled with the Red Scare at the time, cast unions and anyone else willing to strike or complain as traitors, erasing much of the progress made during the first mine war and allowing for further labor abuses. It was essentially the 1920s version of, if you don't like it here, leave. Never mind the notion that wanting to improve one's country rather than giving up on it could be considered the highest form of patriotism. At the same time, while many Americans were worried that any union activity was tantamount to communism, many black Americans left the South, fleeing the downward spiral in living conditions, and many of these African Americans stopped in Kentucky and West Virginia to find work at the coal mines. Jobs were readily available as a result of World War I, and the mines were actually relatively integrated. Though there was some degree of segregation with respect to higher-paying jobs, 75% of African American wage earners in the state of West Virginia were employed in coal mines. Although these diverse populations lived together in company towns, the towns were often segregated into different sections for white workers and black workers, and many Italian Americans lived in Little Italy sections. Despite this segregation, racial and ethnic lines often blurred in these company towns, allowing miners to focus on their shared economic interests to some extent. Now that we've set the stage with some background information, I'd like to talk about our notable key players. There were many important figures in the Second West Virginia Mine War, but perhaps none as noteworthy as Sid Two Guns Hatfield, the 27 or 28-year-old Chief of Police of Matawan in Mingo County. Sid was 5 feet and 7 or 8 inches tall and weighed about 160 pounds. He was described as having fiery brown eyes, protruding ears, high cheekbones, and a complexion naturally sallow, with his vest usually flapped open over two revolvers in his belt. Although Hatfield was not a member of the United Mine Workers of America, he was on good terms with the Union and refused to allow Baldwin Feltz agents to evict miners outside of the legal process. For this, he was murdered, and became at once a martyr and an American hero. His epigraph was recently updated to read, Defender of the Rights of the Working People, gunned down by Feltz detectives on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse in Welch, West Virginia, during the Great Mine Wars. His murder triggered the Miners' Rebellion and the Battle of Blair Mountain, we will never forget. Significantly less heroic and far more infamous was Sheriff Don Chaffin of Logan County. Chaffin was described as as sinister a character as ever stepped onto the American industrial scene. He ruled Logan County with an iron fist and led the fight against striking miners at the Battle of Blair Mountain. He was later convicted of violating prohibition laws, fined $10,000, and sentenced to two years at the penitentiary, proving that he likely cared more about the money he earned on the coal company's payroll than about actually upholding the law. Another significant person in the Second West Virginia Mine War was Brigadier General William Billy Mitchell, the commander of the 1st Provisional Air Brigade. Billy Mitchell was 42 and a top U.S. airman in Europe during World War I. He was originally called in to quash the rebellion at Blair Mountain and proposed dropping gas on the striking coal miners, and if that failed, firing on these United States citizens with artillery. A divisive idea, to say the least. At the opposing end of the spectrum sat William Bill Blizzard, who helped lead the miners at the Battle of Blair Mountain. Blizzard was described as all fire and dynamite, hot-headed and irresponsible, but the Battle of Blair Mountain gave the West Virginia coal miners a hero in Bill Blizzard, who went on to become a prominent union organizer. 
Once again, any examination of the West Virginia Mine Wars would be remiss if it did not make note of Mary Harris' mother Jones. Jones was 64 when she arrived in West Virginia in 1901, and by the Second Mine War, she was 91. She was often referred to as the Old Hag by coal operators, and she worked tirelessly to encourage miners to join the Union and to get federal officials to support the miners. Finally, the most significant group of people in the West Virginia Mine War was the Redneck Army, the ragtag band of troops who fought at the Battle of Blair Mountain, leading the largest insurrection on American soil since the Civil War. Many of these miners were former World War I veterans, and they helped the army to militarize, posting sentries, cutting telegraph and telephone lines, and sending out reconnaissance patrols, while their wives and daughters acted as nurses. The unofficial uniform of this unofficial army was a pair of overalls and a red bandana handkerchief around their necks, earning them their iconic name. Now that we've identified our key players, I'd like to talk about the timeline of events. In May of 1920, three men from Mingo County visited Frank Keeney, the president of District 17 of the United Mine Workers of America, and asked to join the union. A few days later, Keeney gave them the authority to swear workers into the union. By June of that same year, Mingo County was almost completely unionized, but as soon as men joined the union, they found themselves fired and evicted. Some 2,700 to 2,800 men and their families, nearly 10,000 men, women, and children in total, were living in tent colonies in Mingo near Holland and Hermit, Lick Creek, and Sprig. In this sense, the Second Mine War did not begin as a strike, but as a lockout. Things really started to heat up after the Battle of Matalon. On May 19, 1920, a group of over a dozen Baldwin Phelps detective agents boarded the Norfolk and Western's number 29 train to Mingo County. They were armed, and they had been sent to evict six fired union members from their company-owned Stone Mountain Coal Corporation home. At 11.47 a.m., the train arrived in the town of Matalon. The agents were interrupted by Matalon Mayor Cable Testerman and the aforementioned Matalon Police Chief, Sid Hatfield. One of the agents, Albert Phelps, claimed to have an authorized eviction order, but refused to show this to Testerman and Hatfield. Some historians speculate that he didn't actually have this order at all, but I'll leave that to the listener to decide. Mayor Testerman issued a warrant for the arrest of the agents for violating an ordinance by carrying weapons in town, and when the agents returned from their evictions, Hatfield tried to arrest them. The agents then claimed they had a warrant for Hatfield's arrest. Hatfield later stated, Someone went and told the mayor that the detectives had me arrested, and the mayor came out to see what the charges were, and he told the Phelps that he would give bond for me, that he could not afford to let me go to Bluefield. Phelps told him that he could not take any bond, and the mayor asked him for the warrant, and he gave the warrant to the mayor, and the mayor read the warrant and said it was bogus, it was not legal, and then he shot the mayor. Then the shooting started in general. To hear Sid Hatfield tell it, the Baldwin Phelps agent shot first, but the truth is that no one is really certain who shot first. In any case, a gunfight erupted on the streets of Matawan between the Baldwin Phelps agent, police chief Sid Hatfield, Mayor Cable Testerman, and several locals. After 20 minutes, seven Baldwin Phelps agents were dead, including Tom Phelps's brothers, Albert and Lee Phelps. Six other agents managed to escape. Mayor Testerman was dead, as were two Matawan locals, Todd Tinsley and Robert Mullins. The Baldwin Phelps agents later argued that they were on armed and that Sid Hatfield had killed the other agents as well as Mayor Testerman because he wanted to marry the mayor's wife. It is possible that there is some truth to this as he did in fact marry Mayor Testerman's widow two weeks later, but it does not explain how Tinsley and Mullins died. Nonetheless, Sid Hatfield and several others were indicted for the murders of the Baldwin Phelps agents, but they were not convicted. On July 1st, 1920, the miners at Mingo went on strike again 
emboldened by the Battle of Manawan, which had shattered the air of invincibility the Baldwinfeld's agents had so long used to their advantage. Later that July, the federal government sent two mediators to West Virginia, but coal operators in Mingo County refused to meet with them. Several smaller mines were able to reach agreements with the United Mine Workers Union, though. Three Tipple Mines and 19 Wagon Mines signed contracts with the United Mine Workers of America that were effective from July 30, 1920 until March 31, 1922, but the strikes continued other mines. On August 29, 1920, a battalion of 500 infantrymen came to Mingo County under the command of Colonel Samuel Burkhardt Jr. and General Thomas B. Davis, but they left by November 4, 1920. On November 27, 1920, West Virginia Governor Cornwell asked President Woodrow Wilson to declare martial law, but the president refused, though he did send troops back to the area. The fighting and striking continued on and off throughout the year, eventually culminating in the Battle of Tug from May 12 to May 14, 1921. Four people were killed. Then, the Blackberry Mining Colony was shot to pieces, and the death toll for that shooting is unknown. On May 19, 1921, Governor Morgan issued martial law again, using this declaration to forbid mobs and riots, which seems reasonable, but he also forbade public assemblies as well as all processions and parades, threatening miners' First Amendment rights. He also forbade anyone but the authorities from having weapons outside of their homes, restricting the Second Amendment, and forbade the press from criticizing the United States and West Virginia governments, further restricting freedom of speech. By July 1, 1921, more than 90% of Mingo County miners had joined the Union and gone on strike. Coal operators brought in trainloads of strikebreakers from the South, from Chicago, and from New York. Miners responded by blocking railroad tracks, ambushing strikebreakers, and dynamiting mines and railroad tracks. There were numerous shootouts between striking miners and police and mine guards. Then, things came to a boiling point. On August 1, 1921, Sid Hatfield was killed. He had been indicted for shooting up the town of Mohawk and ordered to the courthouse at Welch in McDowell County to stand trial. He went to the courthouse with his friend, 22-year-old Ed Chambers, and their wives. The men were unarmed. They were gunned down by several other men who had gathered on the steps of the courthouse. Their funeral was held on a rainy day in Matawan, with a massive crowd in attendance. In the eulogy, Union lawyer Sam Montgomery said, Even the heavens weep with the grief-stricken relatives and bereaved friends of these two boys. The men had become martyrs to the miners' cause, and any hopes of a peaceful resolution died with them. A week after the murder of Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, hundreds of miners gathered outside the state capitol building in Charleston and presented Governor Morgan with numerous proposals for compromise between the striking miners and coal operators. On August 17, 1921, Governor Morgan turned these proposals down. By August 20, 1921, some 9,000 or 10,000 men had gathered at Lens Creek to march through Boone and Logan County and on to Mingo County. About one-fourth of these men were World War I veterans, and some men wore their military uniforms. Most, however, wore the unofficial uniform of the Redneck Army, a pair of blue overalls and a red bandana around their necks. The men chanted, every little river must go down to sea. All the slaving miners and our union will be free. Going to march to Blair Mountain, going to whip the company, and I don't want you to weep after me, as they marched toward Mingo. But to get there, they had to go through Logan County, and in order to do that, they had to conquer Blair Mountain. On August 27, 1921, Brigadier General Harry Bandholtz from the War Department and Brigadier General William Billy Mitchell, commander of the 1st Provisional Air Brigade, arrived with orders to make the miners go home. Bandholtz met with Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney, 
two union leaders in the state. The Bantholds left soon after, feeling that there was no more threat, though Mitchell seemed anxious to stir up a conflict, arguing that he could drop gas on the civilians to disband them, and failing that, he could drop artillery on them as well. However, it appears that Bantholds had underestimated the situation. On Monday, August 29, 1921, the Redneck Army was back to full strength, and Keeney and Mooney had fled the state to escape murder charges, leaving the army under the leadership of Bill Blizzard. The only thing stopping the miners from marching straight into Mingo County was Logan County Sheriff Don Chaffin, his 3,000-man army of mine guards, deputies, vault and felt agents, and strike breakers who had been told that anyone who doesn't come fight is fired. This army had also been strengthened by Kentucky Governor Edwin P. Morrow's gift of 40,000 rounds of ammunition, 400 rifles, two machine guns, and three airplanes, and they had the high ground on Blair Mountain. Reverend John Wilburn, a Baptist minister in Blair, West Virginia, led 75 armed miners up the east side of Blair Mountain on August 30, 1921. On August 31, 1921, Reverend Wilburn led a four-man scouting party up the mountain, where they ran into Logan County Deputy John Gore and two miners who were not in the Union, John Colfago and Jim Muncie. As in many cases in the West Virginia Mine Wars, it is unclear who shot first, but gunfire soon erupted. Eli Kemp, a black miner and a member of the Union, was shot in the back and later died from his injuries. Gore, Colfago, and Muncie were all killed. The Battle of Blair Mountain had officially begun. The battle went on for four days, and the final death toll remains unknown. The miners sent one column north to flank Blair Mountain, and another column to the south to head west up and over the mountain, but Chaffin held the high ground. When the miners' southern column broke through, it was not long before Chaffin's group drove them back with machine guns. Chaffin's men also used airplanes to drop tear gas and pipe bombs on the miners, like Billy Mitchell had suggested. The miners held on until September 3, 1921, when federal soldiers arrived. Then, as quickly as it had begun, the Battle of Blair Mountain ended when the federal troops arrived, and by Sunday afternoon, September 4th, the entire uprising was over. About 1,000 miners formally surrendered, and thousands more simply left. The Redneck Army disbanded. Those who surrendered were taken to the nearby St. Albans. Overall, they were proud that they had not yielded to the coal operators and their local allies, but had instead forced the federal government to put down their rebellion. Hundreds of miners were arrested for the parts they played in the Battle of Blair Mountain. Many of them were indicted for murder. Frank Keeney and over 20 others were charged with treason, not against the United States, but against the state of West Virginia. Still, all but one of these men were acquitted of their treason charges, and no one was hanged. There is some debate as to who really won the Battle of Blair Mountain, with some arguing that it just took a while to look like a win, and others arguing that it was a loss, but workers later gained important protections in spite of this loss, or that it was definitely a loss, but miners managed to win in the courts. However, I would posit that the Battle of Blair Mountain was just that, a battle. The more important question is, who will win the war?